You're listening to a sermon preached at University Presbyterian Church in Seattle, Washington. For more information, please visit our website, upc.org. I want to begin this morning with two uh, stories. When I was training for ministry in Boston, I was assigned to Mass General Hospital. uh, And I met a man there who said something to me that I will never forget. He was at the end of his life, and I knew he was somebody important because he was up on the higher floor of the uh, uh, tower where they have all the wood paneling. As it turned out, he was a retired professor at Harvard Business School. And we enjoyed our visits together. He did not profess much faith, and I took it as my assignment to help him receive that gift. But by the end of his life, he was slipping into a kind of a dementia. And on the last visit we shared together, I do believe he recognized me. And it was then that he said that which I will not ever forget. He looked me in the eye and he said, I don't think you're a real minister. And I, I didn't know quite what to say, except but I am. <laughs> I went and shared that story with a group of colleagues who uh, were supporting one another. And after talking for a while, we convinced ourselves that that man had no right to say that. And that I had even less right to believe it. But truthfully, I knew he was right. I was half a minister. The other story is a story about a woman who was one of my favorite columnists. And not long ago, I was very sad to read an article she had written in a national magazine. And the article began this way. Sadly, and to my horror, I am divorcing. This was a 20-year partnership. My husband is a good man, though he did travel 20 weeks a year for work. I am a 47-year-old woman whose commitment to monogamy at the very end came unglued. This turn of events was a surprise. In woman's magazine parlance, I did not have the strength to work on falling in love again in my marriage. As Laura Kipnis railed in against love, and as everyone knows, good relationships take work. Then she goes on throughout the article to describe the kind of improbable work that a healthy marriage really does require. And she concludes the article in this way. In any case, here's my final piece of advice. Avoid marriage. Or you may, you too may suffer the emotional pain, the humiliation, and the logistical difficulty, not to mention the expense of breaking up a long-term union at midlife for something as demonstrably fleeting as love. She was halfway through her marriage. Our, our text this morning seeks to speak into a life that finds itself halfway, half enough and halfway through. 
It presents to us the dangers of halfway, but also the opportunity. So would you open up to Nehemiah chapter 4, verses 6 through 9? You find that on page 376 of the Pew Bible. Nehemiah chapter 4, verses 6 through 9. And if you are able, I would invite you to stand and read God's word aloud uh, together with me. It's a story about a group of workers, a group of Jews who are called to what they believe is a sacred calling, and yet they are caught halfway. Listen carefully. You're reading God's word. And as we conclude, I will say this is the word of the Lord, so that if you believe it, you can say thanks be to God. So we rebuilt the wall, and all the wall was joined together to half its height. For the people had a mind to work. But when Sanballat and Tobiah and the Arabs and the Ammonites and the Ashdodites heard that repairing the walls of Jerusalem was going forward and the gaps were beginning to be closed, they were very angry and all plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem and to cause confusion in it. So we prayed to our God and set a guard as a protection against them day and night. This is the word of the Lord. The grass withers and the flower falls off, but the word of the Lord lasts forever. Please be seated. We read here in verse 6 that those who were building this wall found themselves halfway. It's a most precarious place to be when you're building a wall in the presence of enemies, because it's at the halfway point. It's precisely there that those who encircle you can tell what you're doing. They see what you're up to. And yet you're not far along enough into the project in which the wall would be of any benefit to you should they seek to oppose your work. They're halfway through the project, but they're also halfway, I believe, between their hopes and their fears. This wall is an expression of the hope of the Jews. The story of Nehemiah begins back in Susa, the same palace in which Esther did her work. Nehemiah, thanks to Esther, has risen to the number two position in uh, the, uh, the Persian government, the King Artaxerxes I. He's his cupbearer, most trusted of all agents. And Nehemiah gets word from the field that the walls of Jerusalem have fallen, its gates are burned by fire, and immediately he is crushed by grief, falls into tears and prayer. And from that place, there emerges a call, a call born out of hope that this great city might someday be again that city of promise, that city which is the jewel of God's plan to bless all of the nations. And Nehemiah gets this crazy idea, and he has the courage to ask the king for permission to travel a thousand miles from Susa, modern-day Iran, to Jerusalem to take on a job to work, to rebuild that wall. It's an expression of his hope. And all who join him hope likewise for a better and a brighter day. But, but, verse 7, there are fears to be reckoned with. For if inside the wall, riding on his horse, 
constantly encouraging those of us who work on this wall. There is a Nehemiah with all of his hope. There is on the other side of the wall a gathering force. There are, we read, enemies to the north, the, the uh, Samaritans. There are enemies to the east, the, Ash, uh, the Ammonites, enemies to the west, the Ashdodites, and enemies to the south, the Arabs. In giving us this list, Nehemiah tells us we were utterly uh, surrounded by a force that increasingly arms itself with menacing intent that has designs to do nothing other than to stop us in our work. And so here it is that we find ourselves called to sacred work, but caught between our hopes and our fears. What is this showing us? I think God through Nehemiah wants you and me to see what temptation looks like in our calling, what it looks like and how it works. So look carefully at this text with me, and I, wanna, uh, I want you to see three things. First of all, the danger of fear. Secondly, the practice of prayer. And finally, the power of the cross. First, the danger of fear. You know, there's a difference between a taunt and a fear. This is how I would define taunting. Taunting is what someone says to weaken your resolve. Someone says to you to weaken your resolve, to diminish your courage. We see taunting here in in verse 2. This gentleman by the name of Sanballat, who happens to be a governor of Samaria, just to the north of uh, Judah and Jerusalem. Sanballat throws out five questions in the hearing of all. What are these feeble Jews doing? Will they restore things? Will they sacrifice? Will they finish it in a day? Will they revive the stones out of the heaps of rubbish and burn ones at that? No, 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 no is the answer that's implied. He's taunting these workers to get them to stop. Perhaps we can win this battle without a single arrow fired. And you and I should not ever be surprised that when we live from our hopes, there will be someone to arise to oppose us and present to us such taunting. This is why Jesus adds to his list of beatitudes, the blessed bees, that strange last one where he says, And blessed be you when you find that you are persecuted in my name. Why does he say that? Likewise, he says, woe to you when all people speak well of you, for thus they spoke of the false prophets who go before. Jesus wants to present to us a way of living in his kingdom that's so brilliant and beautiful in its hope. He knows that if you should dare to live with that hope, you will be subverting the ordinary and the normal cycles of life. And anybody who dreams a dream that's worthy of their life challenges the banality of everything that is ordinary. And yes, you will be opposed. Yes, there will be those who resist your calling. Yes, you will be taunted. But fear is something different. If taunting is what someone says to weaken your resolve, fear is what you say to yourself that weakens your resolve. You see, we see in verse 10, as this story continues, that the Jews who do this work of construction begin to internalize 
the taunts. In verse 10, Judah said, now the workers, the strength of the burden bearers is failing. And there is too much rubbish so that we are unable to work on the wall. You see what's happening? Now they have taken the taunts, these five questions of Sambalot, and they've put them to themselves, and they have decided they have no good answers to these questions. Truthfully, they are the right questions. We are only halfway able to do this work. Let's go back to these questions and just reflect on them for a moment. The first one is, what are these feeble Jews doing? I think that question is asking, are you qualified? Do we not all, in whatever work God has set before us, ask this question of ourselves? Are you qualified? The second question, will they restore things? I think this question is very much like, do you have a plan? Do you have any idea of how you you could do this? The third question is a little harder to see, but will they sacrifice We find out as we read the story later on that they do complete this wall and there's a great celebration of sacrifice there. As the Jews come and they pull all of their resources and give them for a great offering on top of the wall. It's a celebration of joy. And so for Sambalat to throw this taunt out there is to say, is this something you really want? Is this something that really will give you joy? The fourth question is, will they finish it in a day? Which is to say, Do you think you could ever finish this? Do you think you could really see this to the end? If not, you might as well stop now. And the fifth question is, will they revive the stones out of the heaps of rubbish and burned ones at that? This is the question. Do you have the resources? Do you think you have what you will need to finish this job, to see it all the way through uh, to its end? Fear is when we hear these taunts and we internalize them. Every calling, every calling, Martin Luther tells us, is accompanied by a temptation to give it up. We talked about Luther's calling into marriage and Luther loved his wife and had a strong marriage. And yet he said, no sooner will you be married than every single maid in your house will seem more attractive to you than your wife. And it's just true. I don't want to do my job. I want your job. My job's too hard. We're always looking for something else. Whatever we're called to is not is exactly what we don't want or don't feel equipped or don't feel adequate to do. I just don't think there's a good fit. There must be a better fit out there. We're halfway in our work. That's the danger of fear. And in the face of these taunts and the, and the possibility of this fear, the risk of fear, Martin Luther says we have two resources, two gifts that God has given us. And we find them both here in the story of Nehemiah. And the first one is this, the practice of prayer. We see in verse 9, Nehemiah says, And so we prayed to our God. And so we prayed. There are two things to notice about the prayer practice of Nehemiah. And first of all, it is this, that he prays regularly. He doesn't just throw up a flare and hope that God catches it and gets the basic message and does his part. It's it's why I call it a practice of prayer. He says uh, in in verse uh, 9, We prayed to our God and set a guard as protection against them day and night. And you might read that and think that day and night refers to the constancy and the vigilance of the guard, but it is as well applicable to the 
constancy of Nehemiah's prayer life. In fact, he uses the same phrase day and night of his prayer life in chapter 1, verse 6. Now, as much as the guard is penetrating the darkness, scanning the horizon to look for enemies, Nehemiah and the Jews shall be on their knees speaking heavenward to their heavenly father, seeking his counsel. It's a practice. It's an ongoing thing. And when I pray, God, help me with this sermon. Or God, get me out of this pickle. I believe God says to me, George, I'm really glad you turned towards me. I'm really glad I'm hearing your voice in this moment. But could we spend a little bit of time together in this? Would you extend this moment? Could this be more than just... Could could we have more of a relationship than you have with a toll booth operator, uh, for example? Nehemiah knows the difference. We find him praying in the king's palace. We find him praying between the question and an answer. As he interacts with the king, we find him praying in his diplomacy. We find him praying even as he shares his memoirs with us. In the midst of a paragraph, he turns not to say, dear reader, but to say, dear God. These little intermittent prayers that break out that reflect a continuing practice of prayer. The second thing to notice about Nehemiah's prayers that he prays in the grace of God. Let me say that again and change the emphasis. He prays in the grace of God. If you want a window into the kinds of of prayer, the way he articulates his prayer, you've got to look at chapter 1. Here it's just an illusion, but that's because uh, we've already been given a full prayer of Nehemiah's in the first chapter. And what you notice is the grace of God is the defining reality of this conversation that he's having with the Lord. He, he, he addresses God as the God of love, the God whose love is steadfast in covenant. God, you love me. He knows himself in relationship to a loving God. But he moves right along. He's, he's not just saying God loves everybody, could care about, less about evil in the world. No, he understands that the God who loves him is also the God of justice, the God who's holy. And he says, God, I have sinned. Both I and my family have sinned, point blank. We have offended you deeply. He knows who he is. He knows that if he's a disappointment to himself, he's a disappointment to God. But the love encompasses that in his grace. And he concludes his prayer saying, with confidence, I am your servant. I am yours. And you are my God. In fact... The favorite way that Nehemiah has of addressing God is, Oh, my God. What an expression of intimacy all the way through the book. He knows God is gracious, and in the prayer life that God has given him, he is living in that grace. You are my father. I am your son, Nehemiah knows. It's this same realization and spirit of devotion that gives Jesus Christ the ability to withstand the temptations that he faces as he begins his vocation. Remember that Jesus emerges out of the waters of baptism and hears an audible voice as the Father from heaven says, This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. But from there, the Spirit whisks him out to the wilderness where that very assertion is challenged. And, and, And the devil says, If you are, the Son of God, then do this. If you are the Son of God, if you are the Son of God, three times, see, he's going right at the self-understanding of Jesus, this same self-understanding that God cultivates in Nehemiah through this practice of prayer. 
Oh my God, I belong to You and to nobody else. Nobody else defines my life. Not my fans, not my enemies. It's interesting, we oftentimes turn to Nehemiah because he's such a great leader. And there are so many tactical lessons that we can learn about leadership, truthfully, in the book of Nehemiah. But the power of Nehemiah's leadership is not in any of those practical things. The power of Nehemiah's leadership lies in the strength of his understanding that he belongs to God and that God's grace is the most important thing about his life. The second resource that Luther says God has given us in the face of our temptations with respect to our callings is the power of the cross. Now you say, ah, that must be more Luther than Nehemiah because I see no cross in this, George. This is the Old Testament, 400 years before Jesus has come, and you'd be right. And yet the cross is present here. It's present in two ways. In fact, we might even think about two crosses. The first cross is the cross of Jesus Christ. Those who read forward through time in the Scriptures will understand that it is on the cross of Jesus Christ that the taunts and the accusations of humanity become most pronounced and dramatic. It's as Jesus hangs on the cross that we, that people, look our Savior in the face and accuse Him and say, oh, you've saved a lot of other people. If you really were the Savior, why don't you save yourself now? Get yourself out of this pickle if you were who you say you were. And yet, how does Jesus respond? Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. We see this cross in the ministry of Nehemiah. We also see it here in the failure of his own prayer life. You see, Nehemiah is still a man very much in process. In verse 4 and 5, in the midst of the insecurity of this moment, surrounded by armed forces, Nehemiah nearly capitulates in his prayer life. He says, hear, O our God, these taunts and turn them back on their own heads. He says, don't forgive them the guilt of this. Will you hold them accountable to this? This is not the prayer of Jesus on the cross. Nehemiah hasn't yet seen with clarity the depth of God's love on the cross, that God would die on the cross to bear every accusation in himself. Everyone that ever accuses Nehemiah justly or unjustly, every accusation that ever comes against me or ever comes against you is absorbed by Jesus Christ on the cross. Were he to appreciate that, he would be able to pray as you and I are called to pray for our enemies, to love them and to seek their welfare and forgiveness as Jesus does from the cross. Nehemiah himself is halfway. There's growth yet to come in his life. And here's where we see this second cross appearing. The first cross is Jesus' cross. The second is Nehemiah's cross and our cross. We see it in the resolve of his faith to invite the Jews to stay where they are. You see, Nehemiah is faced with a particular challenge right here. Apparently what's going on is... As these Jews are working on the wall, many of them are not actually living in sight of Jerusalem. Apparently, they're living in some of the outlying villages and towns, so that as these four great armies are mustering strength on the perimeter, they're catching wind 
of this mounting assault. There might even be some little bits of propaganda that are inserted into the ears of these workers as they take their daily commute from the village across the valley up into the work area where the wall is being constructed. Little bits of propaganda like, they're going to come against us when we're absolutely unprepared. We're going to die without any advance warning. Ten times, Nehemiah says, this kind of messaging is coming through and the Jews are just convinced they're going to die. Nehemiah does a very clever thing. Nehemiah does a very faithful thing. Because, you see, his challenge is that they would uh, desert. That pretty soon it would be Nehemiah and his horse up here working on the wall. That his workforce would dissipate in fear. What Nehemiah does is subtle, but look, he gathers together all of the people, gets them all together. There you could see them as a relatively innocuous military uh, contingent. They've got kind of weapons that a farmer would have just, you know, for hunting. They're unarmed. They're unequipped. But Nehemiah speaks to them and treats them in the same way that God had encouraged ancient Israel to gather for battle. He, in other words, creates for them an experience, an echo of the deliverance of God a thousand years earlier in the days of, of, of Jericho and Joshua, where God had said, I will fight your battles for you. And he had said, what you want is a relatively harmless force, ill-equipped and too thin to do anybody any harm. And the battle would begin with a pronouncement of faith. And it would come through the, uh, be summoned through the sounding of, of trumpets. And at the end of the day, what you're going to find is that you're not the one fighting the battle at all. I am the one who fights. And so we see Nehemiah affirming to this crowd, remember the Lord who is great and awesome. In uh, verse 14. And in verse 20, he says, point blank, our God will fight for us. Gathered in this way, Israel, the Jews of that day, recall the ancient deliverance of Israel. Now, if Nehemiah had lived half a a millennium later and he wanted to encourage these people with an image of the deliverance of God, he would have presented them with an image of the cross. Because there is no greater token of God's power over the forces of darkness and all that opposes and discourages uh, people. But the cross of Jesus Christ implicates the cross of our lives. Jesus had taught his disciples that we are to take up our cross daily and follow him. The cross there uh, is an instrument of our own transformation. When he says take up your cross, what he means is die to yourself. Find a way to give up your self-will to receive the life and will that I give you as your Savior. For Luther, Christians don't need to go looking for suffering. We don't need to go finding a cross. Because for Luther, your work is your cross. That to which God has called you and me, any of our vocations, whether that be as a grandparent, whether that be as a boyfriend, whether that be as an employee or a manager, all of these vocations come with all the difficulties necessary for our transformation. There is plenty there for you to realize how incapable you are 
of loving your neighbor. But it is precisely in the recognition of that incapability that you and I are freed to throw ourselves upon the grace of Jesus Christ. Because of the cross, there is an empty tomb. Because Jesus dies, he lives again. And where you and I find ourselves dead or half dead in our work, there is a reminder to press ourselves into the Lord who is the one who is fully alive in us and for us. It's the power of the cross for transformation in your life and in mine. This is right where we live right now. This is what you need to know if you are a parent who is considering adopting a foster child. You're caught between your hope and your dreams, and you need to know your hope and your fears, and you need to know, can I? Do I have the resources? You're halfway. If you're looking into the eyes of a man that you've been dating for years and you're trying to decide, should we get married? You're halfway between your hope and your dreams. You're halfway if you are stepping out of a fruitful career and considering retirement and all the transitions associated with that, caught between hope and fear. We as a church, in the midst of the transition that we're going through, with a great legacy behind us and an uncertain future ahead, are caught between our hope and our fear. But in the midst of all of that, God says, find your cross. Throw yourself with all of your incapability upon me and my grace. Whatever you and I face, Jesus is saying, don't give in to your fears. Pursue the hope that is your calling. It is Jesus. It is Jesus who calls you. And he calls you not only for the sake of your neighbor. Yes, your work is important to your neighbor. We've already said God loves your neighbor through your work as you serve him, serve her. But God also has given you your work, even the hardships and the temptations of your work for you, for your transformation, for your growth, for the deepening and the richening of your experience of Jesus Christ's grace in you when you do not have what it takes for the job. The Desert Fathers used to say, stay in your cell. It will teach you everything. Which is to say, don't keep wandering, looking for another job, looking for another relationship, trying to find a better fit. There might be a better... Consider that the, that the thing that feels like a bad fit might be the very thing you need to grow in life and grace. Paul understood that this was the case. In Romans chapter 8, he articulates a rich sense of call, not only his own call, but the call of this whole church in Rome. He says, we are called, but don't be confused about that. Because we are called, we are going to suffer. But I tell you what, God is the one who causes all of that to work together for good. And let me tell you what that good looks like. It looks like conformity to the image of Jesus Christ, our Savior. That's something to be thankful for. Let's pray. We're just a, a ragtag host of people who come before you, Lord, knowing how halfway we are, how inadequate we are for all the callings of our lives. And we confess to you that as we face these callings, we just 
feel tired and weary and unable to do that which is really needed. So we rejoice in the teaching that in those places we can recall that we belong to you. We, we live in your grace. What defines us is not anything external to us. It's the internal voice of the Spirit who cries out to you saying, Father, the very Father of Jesus Christ is our Father too. Lord, give us the strength that we need to live for the hope that you describe to us in the good news of Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. For more UPC audio or to find out about service times, visit us at upc.org. All online audio is available on CD and cassette. To order copies of sermons and classes, please visit upc.org slash audio, email audio at upc.org, or call 206-524-7301, extension 117.